Blog Talk Radio. Uh, you know, uh, 
and it just it, just to show you the sad state of affairs of jazz in in America in the world. Well, not in the world because in Europe, in Asia, of course, jazz is still uh, red hot and respected a lot more than say the 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 the, the what, <clears throat> I don't know how the public in America. Do you agree? Oh yes, I mean it is. You know, I guess you know. I started uh, in radio in. 1961. I was still in high school, and and by that time had uh, you keep in mind that's uh, the height of Elvis Presley and doo-wop, and I think you and I have talked about this. And three years before the Beatles first came to America in 1964, so there was a period there when radio was full of uh, stations, uh, an abundance uh, of stations with uh, that played this type of music, uh, the American Songbook and Jazz. I think they're they're you know, there's an intersection there. The, so much of the jazz repertoire is music that was written by the Gershwins, Irving Berlin, Rogers and Art, and so forth. And then it went out of, uh, you know, went out of existence almost on the radio, but it never, ever seems to go away. And uh, there are all these pockets around the country, you know, and Boston has always had a very vital jazz community, maybe because of Berkeley College. Uh, and some great jazz club scholars and so forth. And I know here in D.C. we have Blues Alley in Georgetown. And you don't, it's not apparent when you go up the radio dial up and down that uh, there's still a sizable audience out there for the music. But um, I have found that it's a very healthy and a, and a wonderful, vital audience. Absolutely. You know, and, and it, it'll never die. I mean, it's classic. I, uh, you know, one of the things I put in the description of today's show was that you are a great friend with Tony Bennett, and I'm sure you got to hear his interview on Sirius XM a few months back. Um, and, you know, he talked about, he compared that era of the jazz standards to, you know, the Renaissance, and I think he called it a Renaissance. You know the fact that a combination of uh, geniuses got together, uh, like Duke Ellington and Count Basie, et cetera, and came forth at that time in history, along with you know crooners like uh, Sinatra and uh, Tony Bennett and 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 all the rest. Um, you know, especially the female artist at the time. In fact, was that Sarah Vaughan this morning, uh, Blue Indigo? Uh, yes, that was Sarah Vaughan with uh, a very small little group uh, that she surrounded herself with uh, on, it was a double LP, uh, just on the cusp of CDs, it was uh, on Pablo Records of uh, Duke Ellington songs, and uh, you know, if you if you listen to Sarah Vaughan singing that song when she was 26 or 27, I'm sure she did. Uh, it would have sounded one way, but you could hear in that reporting this morning that she had sort of grown into it, you know, uh, and that's one of the things about this music is that artists, including Tony Bennett, their interpretations deepen over the years, I think, as they become uh, acquainted and find new levels of meaning in the lyrics of these songs. Absolutely. So, I think the, uh, you know, and as, a, as a comedian, obviously every artist, strives to find their voice and you're right i mean the when as you mature and as more of life life's uh events enter into your your being uh you, you you start to interpret them in different ways and you're also influenced by different artists and um you know just the times and the environment so you know that's evident as you hear the young tony bennett or the young sarah vaughn and 
um, you know, as they mature through the years. You know, I have to I just have to express my appreciation to you because I was starting to explain uh, as we were trying to connect the phones that I it, it, it's almost uh, a movie uh, in my mind of how I located you. I was, I was just staying in Sandwich with my young family back in, uh, oh, I guess, the 70s. And, you know, scanning through, and here we are on a sand dune uh, on Cape Cod, and, you know, the curtains are blowing open. It's got a naughty pine kitchen, and, you know, it's just a classic um, New England uh, environment or setting. And as I'm scanning through, I all of a sudden I hear, whether it was Sarah or or her, and I was like, what the heck is this? Because, again, (laughs) it was an anomaly, an anachronism as well for the time. Mm -hmm. And and I just said, and, and my kids perked up, the whole house, the whole cottage perked up. And we spent um, every night, just it was a ritual to, you know, 8 o'clock came on and, you know, again, the, the day was through and we had eaten dinner. And there were, you know, two kids in there, um, you know, I think they were four and six at the time. And we just got this three hours of magnificent uh, soundtrack to you know commemorate and you know burn into our memories and my daughters went, uh, became after that you know and, and we were actually still buying vinyl at the time i remember hitting a record store and just starting to you know make a collection of the american songbook so you not only influenced me but you certainly influenced uh, my daughters and you also and we talked so many times i love it when you talk about how you when you did your show how you imagined uh, it was going out to your audience. Because unlike me, I'm, you know, when I perform, there's a live audience in front of me. But you mm-hmm. always talked about the fact you imagined uh, a couple on a sailboat in Cape Cod Bay. Sure. Or, you know, uh, it's amazing, Tom, because I think first uh, and foremost, I love the area that I lived in. I mean, I don't think there was a day when I and it was over 30 years 35 years or so I lived on Cape Cod where I didn't fully appreciate how fortunate I was to end up uh, on that beautiful uh, peninsula and um I I came there because of of radio I didn't come there because I love the ocean or I although I did uh I came there to be program director at WCIB when they signed on the year in uh August of 1970 and two years later, went to WQRC in Hyannis as program director and morning host. And they had signed on in July of 1970. There were about 90,000 people living on the Cape at that time. And, um, and you know, I, I and the first Labor Day came along, Labor Day uh, weekend, and the, it seemed like the, all the oxygen had gone out of the environment down there because – I got there right in the middle of the summer, and I now was experiencing my first uh, post-summer period, and I thought, what the heck am I doing here? This is so deserted. I was in my 20s. I, what am I? I've got to get out of here. But I got through that, and then actually as it got in by the time February came along and the Super Bowl games were on and that sort of thing, I thought, my God, this is the most beautiful time to be here. You could drive, uh, virtually drive from Falmouth, where I lived, to Hyannis on a Sunday afternoon. The blue laws were still in effect, so the malls were closed, and not pass another car for 20 yep. miles on yep. Cape Cod. 
And I think that was the time when I really became very attached uh, to the area and realized there's something really unique and special in the air uh, on Cape Cod. And I had this epiphany as I would drive around the Cape, and there were 15 towns, and you go to a maybe sandwich where you were staying, and you get lost, deliberately go down a side street or something like that. And I'd be driving by these homes, and I'd be thinking, you know, uh, there's such care given to these homes. I don't mean trophy homes, but little cottages with uh, yep. little picket fence. And, you know, yep. that's lured you and your family there. And I would think, you know, in radio, uh, what you do in radio has if they are this fastidious about the outside of their homes the facade the yard the, the what you do has to be get through the front door and into their homes into their living rooms or bedrooms or wherever it is they have their radios and they're listening so you better be at the top of your game all the time and try and do something that will enhance uh, their experience and Obviously, with this music, that's <laughs> you know that's a, a part of its appeal. I think, as it enhances one's life, you're uh, you go to this music. If if you're happy, it will enhance that happiness. And if you're feeling blue, it offers empathy and it offers comfort and it offers hope. So uh, that's I think unconsciously how it all uh, began. And I began that evening program in September of 1977 and continued through. November of 2005, actually doing. Wow. That. Okay. So it was it was that late, and I, I was trying to get a bearing on the actual year. But you know, um, as you know, I you know we've talked before. I'm not only a comedian, but also a motivational, inspirational speaker. And you know, by virtue of the fact that uh, you know I I should have died at the age of 13 and was somehow blessed, um, you know, after recovering from a virtually a terminal disease. And uh, to have the great life that I've had, I've you know read a lot on spirituality and everything. And, and whether it's spirituality or even sports, when people put intentionality into something, as you just described, um, you you went. I mean, your shows were always more. And I think just the the, the little uh, uh, insight we had today when you started talk about you don't only talk about the album but you know and the singer you know the date it was recorded you know what went on uh in the in the town hall you know so much that you you're not only getting a uh, uh to get to listen to music you're getting a history lesson but more than that what uh, I you you set the tone you would just set the tone I'll never forget one night sitting there uh, with my friends, and uh, one of whom was no longer here, the, um, and we were playing cards or something. The kids were asleep, and on came, I mean, in the middle of all this fantastic jazz, I mean, everything from uh, vocals to instrumentals, I mean, um, it, it just, you, you created a vibration, but in the middle of it, Woody Allen's stand-up comic, the I Shot a Moose, came on <laughs> in the middle of that. And so you would you would blend all of these um, modalities to create an experience. And uh, go ahead. No, I'm just saying it was you know I think Duke Ellington disdained labels. You know he, he if someone said Duke is uh, is Ella Fitzgerald really a jazz singer, and um, Duke would always say or is Tony Bennett really a jazz singer. Uh, Tony Bennett is beyond category. 
So I think of things that way. I mean, Woody Allen and George Gershwin and Duke Ellington, and they all, at some point, there's a convergence there. They meet at some point. Um, I think with the music, I, I had the honor of being involved as a senior producer for a 10-hour NPR, uh, a 13-hour NPR salute to Louis Armstrong in 2000, which was the year they marked his um his centennial ago, the great jazz scholar Gary Giddens did the research, and Lewis used to say he was I was born on the Fourth of July, nineteen hundred. He had never seen his birth certificate, so uh, Gary Giddens, when he wrote the book Thatchmo, went down. To, he knew Lewis's uh, grandmother. One of his grandmothers was a Catholic, and he went to the oldest Catholic church and went in and examined the three by five baptismal cards and found uh, Daniel Lewis Armstrong, August. 4th, 1901. And, uh, but in any event, we celebrated that. Uh, and in, in doing the research on Lewis for the NPR series, I came across an incredible quote that really, uh, I think, describes all of these people, Gershwin and Woody Allen and uh, any artist. Uh, he, the musicologist said, Lewis was engaged in the most difficult and yet the most rewarding pursuit someone can elect follow, and that's to try and express what it means to be alive. Wow. And that's why that music resonates um, uh, with us so much, you know. it's Every time you hear Woody, whether he's coming at it from sort of an ironic uh, standpoint with his humor, or whether it's coming um, directly from Cole Porter's writing, I Love You. <laughs> it's the name of a song. <laughs> Where do you go from there? <laughs> You know, exactly. and, and then the you know, it's wonderful. interesting too that Woody is a jazz musician. I mean, he won't miss yeah. his Monday nights. Uh, I don't know if you've seen his documentary. Yeah, I know when he was. I think it was for Annie Hall. He won the Academy Award, but he couldn't uh, go out and accept <laughs> it. <laughs> that Monday night is sacred to him. Yeah. He will not miss uh, that time at one of the hotels in the city. And uh, when they, if you watch the PBS documentary, which was brilliant um you know it really you know traced his whole life's history and his evolution as an artist but yeah he gets in the car every monday night and he goes down and he plays um in in the band and uh it's just just amazing how not much he honors not to get political tom but i was somewhat taken this week uh by when the kennedy center honorees were announced all early, all well-deserving of the Kennedy Center tribute, it still has eluded Woody Allen. And, yeah, um, yeah. You know, America is a big country. Uh, we can separate out someone's personal life from what they have accomplished, what they've given us. And Woody Allen has given us uh, those who love him such joy. I mean, you meet a Woody Allen fan and you're going back and forth with lines and moments and one moment in one of his movies where he talks about having a fantasy of uh, he's he's going before a firing squad. He's going to be shot. And he said, I'm there. And he said, you know, it's just, what the, you know how they say your whole life flashes before you, before you're dead? And he said, there is, there's the farm, and there's the girl in the gingham dress, and there's the silo coming out of the barn. And I realized, long life is flashing before me. <laughs> you know, in... Uh, I read somewhere that all great comedians have a 
a great sense of jazz and timing because uh, it, obviously, you know, there's a rhythm. Comedy isn't just comedy because of the content; it's because of the rhythm, rhythm and the timing. And, and the, you know, there's no better. Yeah, there's the no better medium. Than, sure, you may have a bit sketched out. Uh, uh, I'm never having done comedy, but having observed and watched and loved uh, uh, comics. Uh, you may have something uh, sketched out, and you may know it by rote, and the timing is down, but something very spontaneous happens in that moment from the audience or the microphone or something, and then you're off on a whole new, uh, you just take oh, that. Absolutely. Season. Absolutely. It's, yeah. you know, when I, I spent all those years uh, at at Scholars and at, um, uh, God, what's the other, Regatta Bar, and listening to those greats and just getting so immersed. In fact, uh, you, you know, in, in, in seeing the improv and, and finding out that that's the part of comedy I love the most, when it just gets insane, when somebody says something or something happens on stage or something's going on and you can jump into it. And, and you're right. I mean, I, I, I've never played an instrument, but I can only imagine that it must be the same brain shift uh, that happens to a jazz musician. In fact, this is one of the things I wanted to talk about today. As I was listening to your show, and it's, and it's a shame, it's a sin that, in fact, that's what I wanted to talk about earlier, is what, as I had to put a category in for the show this morning, I went down the list, and <laughs> this is so sad. Under music, they had country, electronic, uh, hip-hop, rock, uh, co- you know, co- coffee house. No jazz. No jazz in the selections of things, so I had to select music. But as I was listening to um, Thelonious, and, you know, that shift happens. I mean, more studies have been done about not only classical music, but especially jazz, that the effect it has on the brain waves. Yes. Do you you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, I... um, I, I just know, I think music uh, was, for our species, we're not the only ones who birds sing, bees sing, uh, other forms of life uh, also have music as a as a part of their uh, experience. But I think for humans, it was given to us as a weapon in our quiver to get through uh, life and Somehow or other, uh, there are the studies that have been done on this, the physiological effects uh, music has on us uh, are uh, are amazing. And there's no denying that there is a way it massages the brain, and this is, this is old stuff now. Um, I always have sort of deferred reading too much about it because once you start analyzing it, you wonder, yep. is it going to rob me of uh, all of a sudden when I hear Basie, on the piano, and I hear the basses start, and then the brushes start playing, and I notice my involuntarily my left foot is going. <laughs> I don't want to know why. I just know it's just bringing me. He's connected me with something there, and uh, it does, and it it just brings uh, such comfort uh, to people's lives. I think, and uh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I I could even f- feel. You know, there's just something going on in the cranium that it's like, wow, you know, I have to wrap my head around this. I think I told you a 
couple of years ago when I found, <laughs> I had, you know, I, I used to, I treasured your show so much that, first of all, for years I tried in vain, but on some certain nights I would get lucky uh, and be able to pick you up here in Boston because I do live on the water, and if the wind was right and the conditions were okay, <laughs> I could get you. But, of course, there's the static, and I would run to my uh, stereo and put in uh, an audio tape. And I have stacks of them. I think I still have them saved of your shows. That's how much I treasured, again, not just the music, because, heck, I could buy the music, but it was the way that you programmed your show. You just have a, you know, you're a genius at it. And, you know, we'll we'll talk a a little bit about, I want you to tell a couple of the stories that I remember. But, um, you know, I could actually feel, you you know, a shift in my head that, you know, you, you have to wrap your head around jazz. It's not listening, like listening to pop or anything else. I mean, that's an experience unto itself. But jazz kind of like, it's like reading a good book or something that's, you know, a little more recondite than the norm. And, you know, so, I mean, it's, it truly is genius. It is. Uh, you know, I there's an HBO special available now on demand uh, with, it's a half-hour special, and it's taped at the Lincoln Center, jazz at the Lincoln Center, and Winston Mar- Marcellus is conducting a, really a master's class for three, four young musicians, but uh, especially the saxophonists. They're all 18 years old, 19, and terrific young guys. But I think Winton comes closest to really articulating all the things that we're talking about and uh, approaching this morning. He really understands it and brings such enlightenment to, you know, you say, gee, I I don't know why I love it. I just, I love it, and I'm I'm addicted to it. I just have to have a little bit of that music in my life every single day. And all the aspects of it about jazz, it's 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 a process of negotiating. It's a process of paying attention. It's a process of supporting one another. Now he's talking about the musicians who are creating it on a stage right. or in a recording studio. It's a uh it's a it's a uh it's a release. It's all of these sorts of things. As listeners, there's another whole set of things that are going on uh with them and some of them are parallel to what the musicians are going through. But it um it was it was just a joy all those years to be have that much freedom. I think I started saying how ducated, uh, you know, categories. But he did say jazz. If he if he had to be designated as a jazz artist, that was fine with him because jazz is freedom of expression. And in radio, I had all those years of freedom of expression. I mean, I never had an owner, a program manager, anyone ever come in and say, you know, you cannot play that artist or Conversely, you must play this artist. That's so rare, so deep. And I knew in the moment how I better earn this every single day. I'm going to just try and do the best. Stay, and that wasn't hard. Exactly. Well, you know, in in it, in each show was a. was a class. I don't, you know, did, Johnny Carson saved, made sure that all of his uh, shows were <laughs> in some vault in Utah right now. Uh, they could have, they can survive a nuclear. Did you have you got some of these these shows uh, archived somehow? No, I have bits and pieces of shows. I saved things that were, if I interviewed Dave McKenna or a series of interviews with Ruby Braff, who lived on the Cape. 
some of those shows, but uh, no, I really don't. I have uh, the American Jazz Sirius XM shows. I have those on CD because I have to ingest them into a, a, into my computer and send them over to XM's uh, server here in D.C. But, you know, it was always, it's, it, I guess it would be like a jazz performance in that you really wanted to try and do a new one all the time because it's 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 not unlike watching Tony Bennett's in Malaysia today, and he's getting rave reviews. A week ago tonight, he, he opened the uh, Tokyo Jazz Festival. He's doing a month-long tour of Asia, ending up at the end of the month with at 87 years old, with two concerts in Shanghai, and then on to Honolulu, and then in New York, I think it's October 6th, a sold-out show at Radio City Music Hall. And But, you know, the people who are hearing him now in Asia sing I Left My Heart in San Francisco or Body and Soul or whatever they will hear tonight, it's different than it was the night before when he sang it, because he's a new Tony Bennett. It's a brand-new day. And exactly. I, no, learned a lot just observing him in terms of how he approaches his artistry, how caring he is about how grateful he is uh, that his life has been what it continues to be. But well, how you know, hard, and, Go ahead. I was going to say how hard he's worked at, at doing it. You know, if you're with him uh, an hour or so before he goes on, you may be at a hotel and he and his wife Susan will be there and you be talking and having a cup of coffee and wonderful stories and talking about art and philosophy and politics and music. And you see he starts pacing a little bit and looks a little bit uh, apprehensive and he's looking at his watch and he'll say, well, I have to excuse myself. I have to go in and do my vocalizing. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I mean, vocalizing, you've been vocalizing since forty-six, <laughs> But that's how much he cares because he wants that audience to have only the best Tony Bennett when he walks out there. And the door will close, the conversation will continue, but behind the closed door you hear, <laughs> and he's in there. And I've learned so much, you know, that you just don't do it casually or you have to think about it. You have to really get in a zone uh, consciously or unconsciously, and that the audience deserves only the best you have. I always was so, Tom, in radio, uh, and you know it in with performing, or that you're exacting from people the most important thing they have, the most important thing they have. They, well, outside of their loved ones and their families, the most important thing they have is their time. Exactly. It's time and attention. Yes, exactly. It's, it's, it's finite. You could say, give me $1,000, and they might reach in and give you it, and they can get that 1000 back. But they can't back, get back to 5 minutes or 10 minutes or 15 exactly. minutes. If you. So um, those are some of the things that percolate, again, consciously and unconsciously with the work. Well, you know, and, and it's it's such an important facet because every sh- – I, I just – I can't – you know, I express what those evenings were like. I mean, once that show started, and it wasn't just the music, especially your stories, and at some point, whether we do it today or in a future show, I, I want you to um, give us a sample of one of the, sto- these, the stories. But I, as you know, I, I started a business a while back with a, a children's property, and it had to do with animation, and so I became obsessed with uh, watching things like Shrek, et cetera. And mm. um, I think maybe you and I have talked about this in the past, about the movie Ratatouille. Yes. Have you ever seen that? 
I have not. No. Okay. Well, the, in the movie, I mean, it, there's there's an ingredient, a texture to um, to Disney movies, especially if you think back on the classics like Snow White, etc., Pinocchio. You know, he, he, and I found out later through my journey through the the children's property and its life that. Uh, Disney hired the, I think it was called the Disney 7, Disney 12, whatever. He hired the best combination of classical artists from, uh, who were, you know, had a, um, a dedication to animation from not only America, but uh, from Belgium. And it was uh-huh. a melange, a, a collection of these, these geniuses who, when you looked at it, even as a kid, I knew there was something different about Disney animation. I mean, it was just, it, it was, it was like being in a museum, but the paintings moved. And as a result, I uh, would watch, uh, and when Ratatouille was able to capture that kind of Disney feeling for the first time for a modern, um, a modern picture. And I would ask, you know, audiences that I spoke to about inspiration, etc., you know, about, did you get a feeling with that movie? And everybody agreed that there was definitely a feeling that that conveyed. And so I listened to an interview that both the restaurateur whom they studied, they had to study all the moves that went on in the restaurant and the operation of the restaurant to capture it, and the animator. And they asked me two different times in two different places, what was their purpose? And both of them gave the exact same answer based around their particular professions. And the restaurateur said, he says, I want to make an emotional connection to give my patrons a feeling that only I can give them. And the mm-hmm. same thing was said by the animator. I want to give my viewer uh, a feeling, uh, make an emotional connection to give them a feeling. And that's what you always did, and even you do now with uh, your show now uh, on Sirius XM. You're not on the Cape, you know, you're, you're on in the mornings. And I, what I started to say earlier is that when I did reconnect with you, one day I was sitting here, and I kept hearing this voice, and I'm going, that voice sounds familiar. But it wasn't just the voice. It was the sequencing, and it was the moods that you built up. And I remember I was trying to read a book at the time, and you played, uh, I forget the name of the song now, but it, it was Coltrane and Miles Davis together. Uh, do you uh, remember this? How, uh, did they call, well, go ahead. All Blue, something from yeah. Kind of Blue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I remember that again. That shift in my head occurred that I, I I couldn't concentrate on what I was reading. I had to put the book down, and I just went, "Oh my god!" I was having my mind blown by these two geniuses, and so I ran over and I looked at, and there's there was your name, and Dick Golden. I'm like, "Oh my god!" Only only Dick Golden could put together this kind of a show. And so everything I'm hearing from you today is saying exactly that, that you obviously looked to make that emotional connection and give people a feeling that was unique to to Dick Golden. Well, you know, and thank you, Tom. And and when you mentioned those Disney artists, I was thinking of an observation that E.Y. Yipsel Harburg made. Yip Harburg was one of our foremost lyricists. His most famous lyric was the one he wrote in collaboration with composer Harold Arlen for Over the Rainbow. But uh, Yip uh, wrote so many marvelous songs. His first big hit was uh, Brother Can You Spare a Dime, written right at the start of the Depression, 1929, 1930. 
But uh, Yip pointed out one time that he's, he in tried to explain why these songs endure, why on this September morning in 2013 we're still talking about Gershwin and Yip Harburg and Cole Porter and Richard Rogers and Larry Hart and Ogie Carmichael and Johnny Mercer. He said these songs, he said, when you, when you listen to a sound, you feel a feeling. When you listen to a word, when someone says something, you think a thought. When you listen to a great song, a combination of words and sound, you think a feeling. You think a feeling. Absolutely. So when you think of Arthur Schwartz and Howard Dietz writing a song, uh, Schwartz was in a library, I believe, and he saw a book. 1930, it said, Dancing in the Dark. And he said, Howard, I want to, this is, you know, never let uh, the truth get in the in the way of a good story. This is, a, I've heard it. Uh, I want to write a song using that title, Dancing in the Dark. And it was 1930, 1931, and it was very dark for people, for life at that time. Right. And you can think of dancing as a metaphor for life for living, and you think of Howard Dietz sitting there. Schwartz writes this incredible, haunting, beautiful, haunting melody, and and, and Howard Dietz says, dancing in the dark till the tune ends. We're dancing in the dark, and it soon ends. We're waltzing in wonder of why we're here. Time hurries by. We're here and gone. You feel that. That's that's your life. That's my life. That's all of our lives. Wow. Uh, you know, I was hoping for one of those uh, those insights, those stories that you are so uh, adept at and so, I mean, so part of your nature. I mean, that <laughs> that's what the listeners just got a glimpse of what happens when you uh, take command of your program. It's those uh, little vignettes that add so much depth. I mean, you listen to the song and, you know, you get caught up in the music and you may be washing the dishes, whatever. But when you sure. stop, you stop and give those words that way with that kind of a spin. And you're right that, you know, life is a dance. Life is a movie. Life is is all of those things. I remember when I was a big um, ski bum and I remember seeing a T-shirt one day. It says, um, skiing is, um, is, is the ultimate dance. And the mountain uh. always leads. <laughs> and you know that's that's the that's the truth is that we we're in this crazy dance and there's a great musician somewhere uh, or uh, conductor conducting the whole thing and away we go. And I must uh, end the uh, book and I don't know how much more time you have. Uh, but got, you it, know, it, we're over, which is too bad because they give us a, me an extra fifteen minutes grace here, and we've got about seven more minutes, and I'm going to use it all because <laughs> I can't let this I, moment I must go. go. I have to keep this bookend story of my life right now in Washington at the George Washington University. I encountered the superintendent of New Orleans schools, who was going to host. He was here at a, for an educational seminar, and he was going to introduce President Obama. 
in New Orleans uh, at an event. This was maybe two years ago or so. It was a commemoration of Katrina and so forth, and the president was coming down to visit New Orleans, and this gentleman was going to be introducing him. And we were just having coffee and having a sidebar conversation. <laughs> and so I said to him, you know, an interesting way of introducing President Obama, a unique way, and he made all this, I said to him, because he's, he's a historian and he's a music fan, and the president may already know this, but it is sort of arcane knowledge. Um, I said, you know, you might mention, and I told him Louis Armstrong's story and the Gary Gittins story and how Louis used to say that he was born on the 4th of July, 1900, because it was convenient, and he knew it was around the start of the century and so forth and so on. And then Gary Gittins, doing the due diligence and coming up with Louis's birth record, uh, there it is, August 4th, 1901. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. Six years to the day. 60 years to the day, August 4th, 1961, Barack Obama was born. Wow. wow. That's an American story. If you wanted to find <laughs> our history, <Yeah>. Louis <laughs> born born when Reconstruction was still going on in a very race-charged environment in a, in a city many considered un-American. Slave trades took place in New Orleans, and, all, and he was a part of all of that experience, the entrails of that experience. And yep. 60 years to the day he was born, Barack Obama was born. And, wow. Uh, I, I guess I, I love history, but, I, but this music is such a part of it. It's our soundtrack to our history. Of course it is. You know, of course it is. And, you know, and it, one, one last thing is recently is the New York Times yesterday that the George and Ira Gershwin Project has just begun at the University of Michigan. It was announced on Sunday. Quote, the project, which is expected to require several decades of note-by-note and word-by-word analysis of every Gershwin song will allow the University of Michigan scholars unrestricted access to Gershwin's stories, letters, and compositional drafts, which are at the Library of Congress, will remain there. What? George Gershwin, didn't he die in 1937? <laughs> didn't he die in 1983 when he was 86? What the hell? Are people still interested in that? <laughs> Exactly. You know, and one of the things that, uh, and again, I can't thank you enough for granting oh, this me this time with you great. because it's poetry. When you uh, when you take the microphone or you take the telephone, it's truly poetry, and it's uh, it, you know it gives you know the. the Individuals like you are rare, uh, not only throughout time, but especially in these times. And, um, you know, I think we, when we do something like this, we connect like this. I mean, before we would do it privately, but, you know, I would, and it was never lost. Uh, I mean, it never stayed with me. I would just get off the phone and say, oh, my God, I talked to Dick Golden. I found Dick Golden. And let me tell you some of the stories he said. And people would just sit there entranced with my, you know, conveyance of something that you had said or done earlier. And, uh, but, uh, you know, we were talking about Wynton Marsalis, and there was, um, I think we only got a couple, oh boy, we only got a couple of minutes, so I'm going to wrap this up quick. But he said in one of his programs, he has a program, right? does he still have it on Sirius? Yes, he does. Jazz at the Lincoln Center, I believe, is the name of it. But he does a couple of things for Sirius XM, yes. 
Yeah, and, if he, and he talked about Thelonious one night, and he was talking about Thelonious genius. And it, for me, as a creative, and you know, when we get wrapped up in the creative process, he said something that was just mind-blowing and so profound. He just said that every artist, he says, has a pathway to the, to the divine that only uh-huh. they can access. And it's so true. I mean, he's, and I never heard it expressed so brilliantly that only Thelonious can be Thelonious. Right, right. You know, and only right. he and all of the rest, and you know, um, Satchmo and and Gershwin and all the people we mentioned and Sinatra, they have, and 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 we all have that, as you have that, that pathway that to the divine that only you, that only Dick Golden can access, or Tony Bennett can access, and and share it. Well, before they rudely cut us off, I want to, I can't. Let's do this again, will you? We, I certainly will. It's an honor and a pleasure, and what a great opportunity uh, checking in with you and connecting with you, and I thank you for the opportunity, Tom. Uh, thank you. And uh, is it okay if I call you in a couple of minutes we can review this off air? Good. That would be terrific. Okay, thanks, thank Dick. You. Thank All right, you. so long, everyone. That's it today for uh, Saturday, September 14th. Yeah, please.